reflecting on the past year, God's goodness and grace. I mean, the word for Thanksgiving in Greek is built on the word for grace. So we're giving thanks to God for the grace that he has shown to us. So take some time this week and think through what are some things you're, you're thankful for and be prepared to share. You may not be able to get to everybody. We're not going to make a long, elaborate service. But I think it would be a great time to really, you know, not just simply gather around the table with food, but to be able to celebrate the Lord and thank him for all that he's done for us. So be thinking about that this week. Galatians chapter 3. We are back in uh, Galatians again this morning, working our way through the book. And we're in the middle section of this great letter. It's the doctrinal section, chapters 3 and 4. Paul is, is basically teaching the Galatians about the, the main idea he wants to, to correct them on. They've, they've, they've gone astray on the issue of how one, is, how one is justified. How is a person justified? How do they have right standing before God? And Paul, when he preached the gospel to them, taught them, preached that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. That as one stands before God by trusting in Christ and what he has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection, and that is the basis of our standing before God. That's what they believed. That's how they came to faith. But then after Paul left, there were these Judaizers that came in and said, no, you've got to be saved by adding works to your faith. In other words, believing Jesus is the first step. It's a great thing. You must do that. But now you also must continue to do works of the law, in particular, to be circumcised. That's how you sort of officially know that you are actually part of the body of Christ. And Paul, in, beginning, in, in laying out the, 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 the thesis, reminds them in, ver, in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Reminding them of that central truth of what he had preached to them when he had been there, maybe about a year prior to this letter being written. And he said, look, and so then as he's sort of elaborating on that main thesis statement, he's been explaining how they can know that justify, how justification is by faith alone. And he reminds them in chapter 3 as he begins in verses 1 through 5, reminding them that they received the Holy Spirit. That the sign of the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant, was to receive the Holy Spirit. And so they had received the Spirit. And Paul says, look, by your own experience, the, the Spirit has come to you and He's working powerfully among you. You know that that only can happen is, is, if you're justified by faith. If you're justified by faith, God gives to His people the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to prove their experience is, is what's right and true because it's how God ordained it in the Old Testament. This is what he, was, he had mapped out for them and laid out for them in the Old Testament. He appealed to, to Paul in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3 to be the preeminent case of justification by faith alone because Abraham believed the promise that God gave to him and God counted Abraham righteous on the basis of his faith. And then in verses 10 through 14, Paul brings out other scriptures to show that the works of the law bring a curse, not a blessing. Not the blessing that God had promised Abraham. So as they are looking to do these works of the law, what they're doing is they're not receiving the full promise of the gospel. They are putting themselves under the curse that the law brings. In God's grace, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become a curse for us. So that, the curse, so that the curse of the law would no longer reign over us. He redeems us from the curse of the law, he says in verses 13 to 14. Well, now in verses 15 to 29, Paul is continuing on this argument. 
right? Argumentation is very, very important in Paul's letters. He is laying out a sustained argument here. And so 15 to 29 continues what he's already been talking about in the first 14 verses of this chapter. He is continuing to prove that justification is by faith alone. And the next evidence that he brings forward here is the trajectory of redemptive history. But as Paul talks about why redemptive history supports the doctrine of justification by faith alone, he gives further clarity to the relationship between the law and the gospel. That's sort of the, the key idea here is, well, if, if God gave us the law, if God gave, it gave Israel the law, and if the law is preserved for us in the scripture, what is its role? What is its relationship to the gospel? And so that becomes sort of the, the key question that emerges in verses 15 and 29. That'll be the key question that we consider this morning. Let's look at our text. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, and we're going to read on to verse 29, which is the end of the chapter. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the question we're going to consider this morning is what is the relationship between the law and the gospel. What is the law's relationship to the gospel? And Paul gives us three answers in this passage. First, he tells us that the law does not nullify the gospel in verses 15 to 18. Then he says that the law points us to the gospel in verses 19 to 24. And then thirdly, the law cannot fulfill the gospel's promise in verses 25 to 29. So let's look at these each in turn. So first, the law does not nullify the gospel. The law does not nullify the gospel. Now, to understand Paul's point in verses 15 to 18, we need to remember the chronology of redemptive history. And when I use that phrase, redemptive history, what I'm saying is we're looking at history as one story with God doing one singular thing. There's a singular purpose to history. So when you go through your world history classes, you're learning about different cultures and civilizations and different days and times and so forth. But we see history as Christians as one story with a singular purpose. God is on a mission to save people. And he works 
throughout that story, especially what we see revealed to us in the Bible, God is working in history to bring that mission to pass. So it's one story telling us how God is on a mission to save his people. Well, we need to think about these two, these two points on the, redempt, on the timeline of redemptive history, if you will. The, the point of the promise that God made to Abraham and then the giving of the law. So where do these two things, these, the Abrahamic promise and the law, appear on the timeline of redemptive history? Now, chronologically, the Abrahamic promise came first. Okay? So after creation, after the flood, after the Tower of Babel, God called Abraham, set him apart, called him to leave his homeland in southern Mesopotamia and go to the land of Canaan. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God made Abraham four promises. The promise of a great nation, and that nation would be composed of people who descended from him. The promise of land, specifically the land of Canaan. Thirdly, the promise of God's blessing upon him and upon his descendants. And then fourthly, the promise that God would bless all the nations of the world through him. And it's that last promise that Paul references back in verse 6, which he refers to as the gospel. I'm sorry, verse 8. Paul references this last promise, the promise that God would bless all the nations of the world through Abraham and through his descendants, as he calls it the gospel in verse 8. So at that time, right, again, going back to Abraham, At the very beginning of Israel's history, God announced to Abraham good news for all the nations of the world. Salvation was coming to sinful people of every people, tribe, language, and nation. So in the timeline of redemptive history, the promise of the gospel to Abraham comes first. Now, 430 years later, God gave the law to his people Israel. We see that in verse 17, right? This is, what, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So just, again, to kind of catch you up between Abraham and the law, Abraham had a son, and Abraham's son had sons. And his son Jacob had 12 sons. And they eventually go to live in the land of Egypt where they dwell and they prosper for a period of generations. And then there was a new Pharaoh who emerged that that enslaved that, those, those, those descendants of Abraham. Those, those descendants grew into a populous nation, and they came under slavery in Egypt for many generations. But God delivered the Israelites from Egypt and then brought them to Mount Sinai where he made a covenant with them. And it was there at Mount Sinai that God gave Israel his law so that they would know how to live in covenant relationship with him. The point I want to really make here, the one to really take away here in terms of Paul's argument, is that on the timeline of redemptive history, the law came after the promise to Abraham. And not just after, but over four centuries after. So since the law comes after the promise, what is the law's impact on the promise? Well, based on Paul's argument here, we can surmise that the Judaizers taught that the law clarified elaborated upon, amended, supplemented, even improved upon the Abrahamic promise of the gospel. They would have argued that justification can't be by faith alone, even if that is how God counted Abraham righteous. Why? Because God gave the law to his people after that promise. Now, certainly, again, they would argue that if God gave the law after Abraham, then what he was doing was modifying the promise that he made to Abraham, or modifying the covenant he made with Abraham. 
And that modification would have included the works of the law. They would have said then that because the law came after the promised Abraham, that obeying the law would be necessary for justification. Faith was certainly important. It was necessary, but it wasn't the only thing that was required. They also must now do the works of the law because God gave those, uh, those laws after the Abrahamic promise. So they say that this, they probably would have said that again, because Abraham did not have the law, he could not obey the law. And yet, what does Abraham do after he is justified by faith? He is circumcised. He would have received circumcision because God commanded him to be circumcised. But Paul adamantly here denies that explanation. He contends that the law does not annul the covenant that God gave to Abraham or God made with Abraham. So why does the law not nullify the promise? Well, Paul says that covenants, once they are ratified, cannot be revoked or amended. In fact, he makes a reference here generally to man-made covenants or human covenants in verse 15. He says to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant or a human covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. In ancient societies like the Jewish society at this time, and even the Roman society in which Paul and the Galatians lived, those societies that Paul was familiar with, once a covenant is made and ratified, it could not be modified or revoked. So Paul argues here that if that is true on a human level, then it's even more true on a divine level. Again, in verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So even though, even though the law comes after the Abrahamic covenant, it doesn't amend that covenant. It doesn't nullify that covenant. It doesn't make the covenant void. The Abraham, Abrahamic covenant takes priority because it came first. And that agreement is binding permanently. So the law and its demands do not undermine the promise or modify the promise that God made to Abraham. If Abraham received the gospel promise by faith, then justification must be by faith alone and not by works of the law, even though the law came after the promise. And so God's promise to Abraham transcends the law. And we can understand what Paul means by that when we look at what God promised in verse 16. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul here is reading the text of Genesis very closely. He's exegeting this here very, very closely, very accurately. Based upon the reading of Genesis 13:15 and Genesis 17:8, both of which clarify the original promise that God made in Genesis 12:3, God made the promise to bless the nations of the world through Abraham and then also Abraham's offspring. Now, in light of God's promise to make Abraham a great nation with many descendants, we would be tempted to think that the promise was fulfilled during the time of the Exodus, when Abraham's descendants became numerous, right? You read the first chapter of Exodus, and Abraham's descendants, the population just explodes. Israel just multiplies. Just the words that are used there just shows a population explosion. And in a partial sense, that promise was fulfilled. But again, a close reading of the text indicates that the promise was not made to Abraham's offspring, plural, but to Abraham's offspring, 
singular. Or as Paul says, not to offsprings, but to offspring, one offspring. In other words, the gospel promise to bring salvation to all the nations of the world is not fulfilled when Abraham has numerous biological descendants, but with the appearance of one particular descendant, whom Paul identifies for us in verse 16 as Jesus Christ. So in other words, the promise that God gave to Abraham is fulfilled only in Christ. And until Christ fulfills that promise, the Abrahamic covenant is in effect. It is not modified, revoked, annulled, or superseded by the law. The Abrahamic covenant overarches and spans the era of the law, looking forward to the arrival and redemptive ministry of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us in verse 18 that the inheritance, which is the blessing of salvation and all of the benefits that come with it, that the inheritance cannot come by law because God gave it by a promise. He gave it by a promise to be received, not by works to be done. The promised inheritance is a gift of grace that God gives freely to his people. It cannot be earned by our works. It can only be received by grace. If the promise could be earned by the law, it would cease to be a promise. But it can't cease to be a promise because God gave it as a promise to Abraham. And that promise precedes the law. So the law cannot nullify the promise of the gospel. Justification must be received in the same way that Abraham received it, which we see in verse 6, is by faith. Now let me just pause here for a second. What we're going to go through today is very complicated doctrine. I get that. It's complex. In fact, I'm having to reference my notes a lot more today than maybe I usually do, because I want to make sure I keep it straight. Okay? So there's not a lot of application here. One of the things that this is important, why Paul is, is doing this, is because we, we stand on the firm foundation of doctrine, right? We stand on the foundation of truth. And so we need to know that doctrine well and be encouraged by it and strengthened by it. And so there's not a whole lot of application because in Paul's letter, the application is coming later. Application is coming in the final two chapters. And so when we get to chapters 5 and 6, I think you'll see a lot more uh, personal application. It'll seem a lot more relevant to you than maybe this complex theological um, debate or you know, working through the theology of it that is, is very hard to, to wrestle with. But I do think there is a point of application to make here. And it shouldn't be lost on us. And that is we need to see in Paul's argument God's grace and faithfulness. God was under no obligation to make a promise to Abraham. Why God chose Abraham, why God chose to save him, why God chose to make the gospel promise to bring salvation to all the nations of the world is just utterly beyond our comprehension. It is only by the grace of God that he makes this promise. It is only by the grace of God that he works it out in history so that we might ultimately be saved. Even the faith by which we believe the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his death and resurrection is a gift of grace. What does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? For it is by grace that you have been saved. And not of works, right? But that grace that we has come to us, we receive by faith, right? It's by grace you have been saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Even the very faith by which we believe is given to us as a gift of God's grace. So all of salvation from beginning to end is the work of God's grace. God is extremely gracious and kind 
to take pity upon us in our lost condition and then send his son, the offspring of Abraham, to fulfill the promise of salvation so that we might become sons of God. What an incredible, incredible display of God's grace. But also we see here is the incredible faithfulness of God. That God remains steadfast throughout the ebbs and flows of Israel's history. How many times have we read the Old Testament and we kind of scratched our head and say, what is God doing here? Why is God so patient with these people? Because God was being faithful. He was being faithful to himself, to his desire, to his will to save. He was being faithful to his promise to Abraham that he would make a people from all the nations of the earth. God was faithful to move through history, to move in this direction, to bring all things to the fullness of time so that at the right time he would send his son into the world in order to fulfill that ancient promise to an ancestor long dead. Even as Abraham's bones rotted to dust, God worked to give him many descendants to imitate his faith. So even though verses 15 to 18 might seem to us a complicated explanation of a complex theological doctrine, we can see clearly what God has done and we can give him praise. So the point to take away from verses 15 to 18 is that the law does not nullify the gospel. So the next question that I think we are to ask is, well, if the, if the law doesn't nullify the gospel, what purpose does the law have? If God's giving this salvation by promise, if justification is by faith, then what's the whole point of having a law to begin with? The law can't justify. The law only brings a curse. So why do we have the law? And that's the argument that Paul's going to make in verses 19 to 24. The law exists to point us to the gospel. The law points us to the gospel. And it does so in three ways. First, Paul says in verse 19 that the law increases transgression. He says, why then the law? Right? That's the natural... I love, how, I love Paul's argumentation. Right? He's always anticipating what the next kind of question is going to be. And he kind of gives you what that question is. Well, what's in the law? I'm sure the Galatians say, well, what's the point of the law? These Judaizers are telling us there's this law we're supposed to obey. What do we do with it? What's in the law? Paul says in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So let's just take the first part of that. The law was added because of transgression. What he's Paul saying there is that the law increases sin. The law increases sin. Now, that seems counterintuitive, right? We would think that the law would have the opposite effect. We would think that the law would help us understand more clearly what sin really is. And because we would know what sin is, then it would deter us from sinning in the first place. And that is true to a degree. In fact, it was Calvin who identified these two purposes as the first and second use of the law. The law defines for us what sin is so that we can clearly see it. And then the law helps us to avoid sin or should help us to avoid sin. In fact, Paul says something of this. In Romans 7, verse 7, he says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it, what, what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. In other words, covetousness is a sin whether we know it or not. But Paul says that he learned what covetousness, what covetousness was because the law identified it for him. This is covetousness, and you shall not do it because it is a sin. So again, thinking logically, 
we would expect that knowing what covetousness is would deter Paul from committing the sin of covetousness. I should have picked a different sin because that's a hard word to say, covetousness, especially saying it several times in rapid succession. Okay, but the, the law in action, so, so here, here's Paul. Covetousness is a sin. The law says it's a sin. It should keep him away from covetousness, right? But in actuality, the law had the opposite effect. In fact, Paul's kind of giving us here a, 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 an implicit form of a personal testimony. I'm going to go back and read some of that Romans 7 passage. Romans 7, the beginning of verse 7, which we just read a moment ago. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to, to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, it killed me. So though the law should have restrained sin, instead what it did is it stirred up rebelliousness in Paul's heart. Instead of, instead of the law keeping Paul from sin, the law provided an opportunity for him to transgress the law because of the sinfulness of his heart. And we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, right? Just to use the same example I used Wednesday night. You know, if, if, if there were, a, if there were a, 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 a patch, let's say, for example, you're at a, a university or, or some, um, uh, I don't know, capital complex or something where there's a, there's a field, there's grass. You don't want people walking on the grass, Right? And so people probably wouldn't even think to walk on the grass except when there's a sign there that says what? Keep off the grass. Now, what is the natural response to that sign for most people? Hmm, keep off the grass. I wonder why they want me to keep off the grass. Who are they to tell me to keep off the grass? I wonder what it would be like to keep off the grass. That sign, that law that tells us don't do this because we don't want you to do this, stirs up in you all of that rebelliousness and sinfulness to actually do it. And so Paul's saying here that the law does something similar to us. Now, he does go on to say in Romans 7:12, he says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and good and righteous and good. So we need to understand here that the law is good. It comes from God, but it stirs up our rebellious hearts to want to sin against God even more. And that's exactly what we see in the experience of Israel in the Old Testament. Did the law make Israel more righteous? No. In fact, it was just the opposite. The law couldn't curb Israel's sinful hearts. It only encouraged them in their sinfulness. And that leads us again back to Paul's rhetorical question in verse 19. What then the law? Right? What's the purpose of the law? Paul dismisses the idea that the law is contrary to the gospel with a strong negative. He says, certainly not. In verse, sorry, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, he says. That's a strong way of saying no in the Greek language. Again, he says something similar in Romans 7:12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. Where does the problem lie? It lies with us. The problem is not with the law, but with us. Our sinful hearts use the law as an opportunity for sin. 
And that leads us to the second way that the law points us to the gospel by imprisoning us. The law imprisons us. Paul says in verse 22, But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, how does the law imprison us? I think it does it in two ways. First, the law binds us to our sin. By increasing our transgressions, the law makes evident that it is not the solution to our sin problem. We cannot work our way out of our sin. Our rebellious hearts see the law as an opportunity to sin. And because we continue to sin, the curse of the law continues to hang over us to condemn us. And so the law enslaves us to our sin. It reminds us that we are sinners and we cannot get away from our sin. And because of that, the curse of God's eternal judgment weighs upon us like a crushing burden. Which is why at the end of that chapter, Romans 7, it would be a great chapter to read to kind of follow up on this sermon. At the end of that chapter, as Paul is considering the law and its role in his life and his sinfulness, this is what he says. He says, this is Romans 7:24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The law has done nothing but to increase transgressions, and I cannot work my way out of it. What then will save me? What will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's saying that the law cannot save us. And to that extent, the law also imprisons us by holding us in bondage until the time of judgment. The scripture, Paul will say in Romans 6, that the wages of sin is death. And because the law binds us to our sin, we are imprisoned in its grip until the time of judgment, when the sentence of condemnation is pronounced and we face the full reality of the curse that the law brings. Paul's argument in verses 21 to 24 here reminds us that the law does not bring life. It brings death in its fullest sense. It brings eternal death. If the law could give life, then we could be justified by the law. But it can't give life. And therefore, we can't be justified by the law. So the law imprisons us to await the time of judgment. But the law also anticipates the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, right? The law anticipates the gospel because it anticipates the gospel. Paul says that the law's imprisonment has a second function. It imprisons, imprisons us until the time of fulfillment. So again, verses 21 to 24. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisons everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So, Paul says here that the law is helping us to look forward to a time of release. The law imprisons us because it condemns us, but the law is also meant to look for a time of relief, to, uh, a release, a time of redemption. Like a convict in prison awaiting the day of his release, the law held sinners captive until Christ came to redeem the law's curse by his death on the cross. And that gets us then to the third aspect of this uh, idea here of the law pointing us to the gospel. The law, Paul would argue here that the law leads us to Christ. The law leads us to Christ. Verse 22, Paul says that the Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
And in verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, Paul uses the word guardian here. It's the Greek word pedagogos, which is where we get our English word pedagogue from. It's another word for a teacher or a tutor. In Roman society, the guardian, the pedagogue, was a trusted elderly slave who was responsible to lead a child to and from school where he would be educated and civilized. A father would entrust his children to the care and protection of that guardian. And the guardian then had the responsibility to entrust the children to the care of the teacher where they would learn the day's lessons. So the guardian functioned very much like what we would think today of as a babysitter or a nanny. The babysitter, the nanny, is a child's temporary custodian until the time that the parent comes home from work. The law functioned as a guardian to lead us to Christ. In redemptive history, the law was enforced until Christ came. And when Christ came, the law gave up its temporary custody of God's people to the care of Christ, who justifies by faith. This is still a useful function of the law today. The law helps us to see our sinfulness and our rebelliousness. But because it can't make us righteous, it makes us feel the weight of the condemnation that it's supposed to give, the guilt it's supposed to give. And it also helps us to look for one who can truly set us free. So the law points us to Christ. It points us to our Savior and Redeemer who breaks the curse of the law and gives us life through his atoning death and resurrection. So just as a helpful, helpful word of application, if you're still a parent with children at home, the law is a great way to disciple your kids. Not because of you're trying to be, uh, modify their behavior, because you want them to see their need for Christ. The law will show them how sinful they are, but the law will also point them to their need for Christ. Using the law is also helpful in evangelism. Again, it seems counterintuitive, but it's a great tool in evangelism. One of the great difficulties that we face in evangelism today is getting lost people to see that they're they're lost, right? You almost have to get them lost before you can get them saved. People are not aware of their own need. They're not self-aware of their sinfulness and rebelliousness. What you do with Jesus is good for you. I'm okay. We have to help people see, no, you're not okay. And how do we do that? We lay their lives down next to the law. We show them how they are lawbreakers, how the curse of the law weighs upon them, and the guilt and condemnation that the law brings, so that they will look to Christ, our Savior, who can truly set them free. A great resource in this regard, if you're looking, maybe you're trying to uh, uh, you know, work with somebody or, or, or witness to somebody, is a, is a tool called The Way of the Master. If you've heard of Kirk Cameron, the movie star from the 80s, who's now a Christian, uh, Way of the Master, Ray Comfort is also, you can look on their website and see videos of how they do this. They go to some rough spots out in California. They go to some rough spots out in California and doing street evangelism, and they're just simply asked, they're going, walking through the Ten Commandments with people. And helping people, to, and it's, just, it's very eye-opening to see how many of those people will say, you know, I never really thought about that before. I never really thought about the fact that I'm a murderer if I've thought evil thoughts into my heart toward other people. I'm not, I've never really thought about the fact that I'm an adulterer if I've thought about lust in my heart toward another person. I, I've never thought about me being a thief, just even simply taking something that belonged to someone else, even if it's something very simple. You break the law, well, you're, the condemnation of the law weighs upon you. Well, now how do you get yourself out of that? And what an opportunity to present Christ. All that just extra. That's by way of application. God gave us the law. God gave the law to his people in part to point us to the gospel. 
to prepare the way for Christ and to make us see our need for Him. So to that end, in the course of redemptive history, the law was a temporary custodian. It served its purpose by holding God's people imprisoned until Christ would be revealed to fulfill the promise that He had made to Abraham. So to that end, the law cannot justify sinners and give life. But it was never intended to. That was never its purpose. It served its purpose by showing sinners their helpless condition, their sure condemnation, and their gracious Redeemer. And to that end, then, Paul presents the law and the gospel in contrast. And that brings us to the last observation to make about the law and the gospel. The law cannot fulfill the gospel's promise. The law cannot fulfill the gospel's promise. The law belongs to the old order of God dealing with his people. It increased transgressions and served as a guardian until Christ came. But when Christ came, the law ceased to function as our guardian because Christ fulfilled the promise of Abraham. How does Christ fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham? Well, He fulfills that by making us sons of God. He makes us sons of God. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham? That God would bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham? Well, how is God going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham? There's a many variety of ways that we could talk about the blessing that comes to us in salvation. But the point here that Paul wants to elaborate on or highlight is the fact that he makes us his sons. We are sons of God. God could promise Abraham that he would have many descendants and that he would bless the nations of the earth because... He would fulfill both of these promises in Christ. By faith, the nations, again, Paul talking to the Galatians, the Gentile Galatians, including them. By faith, the nations would, not, would, not, would become not merely Abraham's descendants, but they would become sons of God. Becoming a son of God is another aspect of the blessing that God promised for the nations to Abraham. We receive the blessing of the gospel. We become descendants of Abraham. We become sons of God by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works of the law. Again, looking back at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law can't make us sons of God. Only Faith can. Faith in Christ. And this is why Paul doubles down on his argument to the Galatians that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. These last few verses here are really summarizing the point of the argument that he began even at the end of chapter 2. Now, how do we give evidence, outward evidence, to our faith? Well, that's why Paul here includes baptism. He says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, Paul has already argued that the Galatians are truly God's people because they believed the gospel when they heard Paul preached it. And what was the immediate evidence of that just, of justification? Well, they received the Holy Spirit. They believed. They received the Holy Spirit. Why did they receive the Holy Spirit when they believed? Because that was the promise that God made in the New Covenant, that those in the New Covenant, those who would enter into a new relationship with God, would receive His promised Holy Spirit. His presence, the Spirit's presence among the Galatians indicated that they had truly believed because God promised the Spirit to all who entered into the new covenant by trusting in Jesus Christ, the mediator of that covenant. 
So the presence of the Holy Spirit verified the Galatians, that the, verified to the Galatians that they were indeed believing the gospel. There was no need to be circumcised. But they represented their faith outwardly in Christ through baptism. By baptism, they identified themselves with Christ. This is what we did a few weeks ago when we baptized these new young brothers into the faith, right? We were celebrating the fact that they were outwardly professing their faith in Christ. They had trusted in Christ. They indicated that they were trusting in the death of Christ to save them from their sins. And they were trusting in Christ's resurrection from the dead to bring them new life, to raise them up on the last day and to justify them before God. So by baptism, the Galatians were putting on Christ, he says. That was a symbolic way of showing that they had put on Christ, that they were trusting in Christ, that they were Christ's very people. They were embracing Christ. They were aligning themselves completely with Christ. They were committing themselves to walk in this new way of life, this way of their promised inheritance. So baptism marked them as God's people. So if they are already marked as God's people by their baptism which aligns them with Christ, there is no need for circumcision. So the law could not fulfill God's promise. Only the gospel can. And we see that in verses 28 and 29, where Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Circumcision created a division between Jews and Gentiles. But the gospel eradicates those divisions. The gospel fulfills the promise to Abraham so that people from all nations may become sons of God. The gospel, therefore, breaks down barriers. There is no distinction at the foot of the cross. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free person. There is no male or female. All become sons of God and attain the blessing that God promised Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't eliminate those roles and responsibilities that God gives to men and women and to, in this culture, slaves and free. But when we come to Christ, we come to the place of salvation, we are all sons of God. And the word sons there, by the way, is deliberate, not sons and daughters, because in that culture, daughters had no inheritance. For a, for a woman to be called a son of God in this context means that she is included in the inheritance just as much as her male brothers are. All are sons of God. All who believe in Christ belong to Christ. There is no distinction. And if you belong to Christ, you are a son of God. And if you are a son of God, you are a descendant of Abraham. And if you are a descendant of Abraham, you are an heir of the promise that God made to Abraham. And what is that inheritance? It's it's salvation. It's the blessing of salvation. All the benefits that come to us in Jesus Christ. Now to wind this down, I would think again, this is a complicated doctrine, a complicated passage, not a lot of application to to this, there's a lot of solid foundational theological truth upon maybe we should be encouraged by and strengthened by for sure. But I would imagine nobody came in today really being particularly troubled by the Old Testament law, right? There's nobody here struggling with whether or not they ought to obey a lot of those arcane um, laws in the Old Testament, making sacrifices and celebrating ordinances and eating certain kinds of food and those kinds of things. We're far enough removed by time and distance and heritage and maturity not to feel the weight of the problem in the same way that the Galatians felt it. 
But on a macro level, we, do, we may feel the weight of the law in a big picture sense. We might feel the condemnation that we don't please God or that we fall far short of what God expects of us. We might read the moral demands of the Old Testament and even the ethical requirements of the New and feel that we don't measure up. We know our shortcomings. We know the sinfulness of our hearts. We know the temptations that elicit excitement in us. And that frustrates us all the more because we have trusted in Christ and we do want to be pleasing to God. Tom Schreiner in his commentary in Galatians says, The devil wants to discourage you and tell you that you can never be right with God because of your failures. But the gospel says that we are right with God because of God's promises of life in Christ. So the antidote to guilt, the guilt of your sin, the guilt of not feeling if you measure up, the guilt of succumbing to temptation or battling with temptation, is not better effort or greater attention to the law, but it's resting in the grace of Christ in the gospel. The law says, do this, but the gospel says, accept this. If you're struggling with your guilt, if you're struggling with your sinfulness, run to Christ. Find your acceptance in what He has done for you. Find your sins washed away completely, fully, and rest in Him. The law helps us to see our sinfulness. It makes us aware of our sin and failure and brings the weight of condemnation upon us. But God gave us the law to look to Christ, to see that we cannot justify ourselves, but to show us He has provided one to justify us. We only need to trust Him and what He has done for us. John Bunyan encapsulated the contrast between the law and the gospel beautifully in this short poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. For better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. May we always continue to find our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it comfort us, may it encourage us, may it strengthen us. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the gospel of Jesus. We are grateful that he has broken the curse of the law over our lives. We are thankful, Lord, that he has redeemed us, he gives us new life, and empowers us to walk in a new way. Lord, I pray this morning that as we consider these things, that we consider the wonder of the gospel, that we would consider what Christ has done for us and how it was the fulfillment of all that you've promised in the Old Testament. All that you were doing was all to bring us to the point of Christ and to the point of his death on the cross and resurrection of the dead so that we could have life, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that the weight of guilt and shame and condemnation would be removed so that we would walk in newness of life. Father, may you empower your people to walk in that way. Thank you for Jesus. May we always find our comfort and hope and refuge in him. It's in his name that I pray.